If you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, and in today's episode, we are sitting down with Jill Jamison, CEO of Illuminati Infrastructure Advisors. Our theme of today's show is no K-N-O-W money, no infrastructure. I get excited about all guests, but in particular, uh, very excited to have Jill on the show. Um, the entrepreneurial real estate developer in me uh, loves, loves the art of the deal, and Jill is very much involved in the art of the deal of infrastructure. Uh, Jill is globally recognized expert in infrastructure finance and public-private partnerships. So while many of our guests are downstream, downstream of the capital project development process, Jill is advising public entities way upstream on how an infrastructure investment can be uh, financially feasible. She may correct me, but I liken it to a pro forma financial due diligence of a real estate development deal. I am not stretching when I say that Jill is an advisor to princes, presidents, and public agencies globally, and we're honored to have her. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thanks so much, BJ. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's uh, great to connect, great to reconnect. And uh, as an introduction to this, for our listeners, Jill is what I call a silent mentor to me. So Jill and I uh, had connected on LinkedIn probably three or four years ago through Duke DeLuca, and she is probably the most click-through news article sharer I have in my LinkedIn feed. Uh, so Jill, thanks for all you're doing to mentor me from afar by sharing everything uh, infrastructure finance related. Well, it's good to know that somebody is actually reading what I click on and put on LinkedIn. So that's good. Yeah, no, I think I think it's important, right? There's a lot of um, people think of infrastructure as sort of a you know an asset that's in the ground, but there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into it and around it. And so, yeah, I try to uh, make sure that uh, we educate the public as we go. There's a lot to talk about. So your biography is very long, but. I would love you to tell us a little oh. bit more of the personal side of your of your bio and how you ended up being becoming a global expert. Some of our listeners are are just coming out of school; they they may be interning at at a uh, at a Deloitte or a KPMG or or an AECOM right now, trying to figure out what their role in public infrastructure is. Uh, so, can you tell us where you got started and how you found your way to uh, where you are today? Yeah, I mean, my, my bio's long because I'm old, right? So, so I, uh, and, and, and like any old person, I like to tell the story of my life. But um, no, no, truly, um, it is a uh, extraordinary tale. Um, and I don't say that as, as, as boasting. I say it in that it's not ordinary what happened with my life. Um, so, so when I was a young kid, all I knew is I wanted to do something international. I couldn't define it. I didn't know what it was. So um, that took me to Georgetown University for college, um, where I studied international law and politics. Um, my first job, at, by the way, my academic advisor while I was there was Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State. Wow. So uh, very uh, interesting uh, background there. But my first job after college was actually I went to China and I was teaching economics in Manchuria of all places. Got caught up in the Tiananmen Square massacre um, and that sort of just completely pivoted my mindset. Um, obviously I had to evacuate, came back to the U.S. Um, at the time, everyone I knew was going into investment banking. So I said, oh, you know, I'll try it as well. And I did a little stint with uh, with Merrill Lynch. Um, like all of us, I went to grad school thereafter. I went to Harvard and Tufts, uh, again, focusing on international things, but with a with a with a dual degree in both law and finance. Um, and again, I was going to go to Wall Street. And as all good stories begin, I followed a really good looking guy to Venezuela. <laughs> and while I was in Venezuela, he sent out my CV to all the investment banks. And so instead of just becoming uh, an associate at the time, which is pretty much the level you would come out of college, um, I actually was running an investment bank in, in Caracas, Venezuela at the age of like 26. Um, and that's where I first became uh, introduced to public-private partnerships and private financing of public infrastructure. As you may know, um, Latin America has been using sort of the model longer than we have in the United States. And so 
at that point I was still running the investment bank and I was like, what do you mean? You just take pennies and that's how we're going to finance this, this, this road. But it taught me a great deal. Um, that was going well. Uh, as, as things go, though, Venezuela, you know, imploded. Um, so it was time for me to leave. And as I was leaving, I um, was asked to pay a quick visit to Costa Rica, where a buddy of mine from graduate school had been elected president. And he asked me to be his advisor on infrastructure finance. Now, I don't think I knew anything about it at the time. <laughs> and I was <laughs> extraordinarily amazed that anyone had confidence in me. Um, but we did a great deal of work there, right? So, so we did the airport concession. We did roads. We did ports. Um, and that really led me into um, the world of consulting that I find myself today. Um, at that young age, I actually, when you have a buddy who's a president, it uh, it serves well for business development. <laughs> and so uh, he would introduce me to other presidents and I ended up advising almost all of the countries in, in, in Central and Latin America uh, in infrastructure finance for about a decade. And then uh, decided to come back to the U.S. around 2001, 2002. I sold my business, so I had a non-compete. I wrote books that nobody read. I did charity work, those sorts of things, and started to get bored. You, you can't really retire in your 30s. I don't think that that works. So, um, so yeah, so then I picked back up again. I joined Deloitte, and they sent me to Kosovo, um, where I helped rebuild after the war, again, with roads and, and, and airports and those sorts of things. No good deal go, deed goes unpunished. I ended up in Central Asia, doing the same sort of thing in Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, um, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. Uh, did some other work in, 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 in Thailand, was in Paris and England. And there was a moment um, in about 2012, 2013, we were able to close a um, a deal in Kosovo of all places that didn't have any, it didn't have a credit rating because it was a brand new country that <laughs> had no track record, no reason that we should close something during the financial crisis. And yet we closed their airport concession in record time. And it's been a great project. And I flew back from that airport after it was built and I came back to, into JFK and I said, what am I doing? Kosovo has a nicer airport than we have in New York City. And I said, you know, it's time for me to pivot and come back to the U.S. and start focusing on U.S. infrastructure. And that's what I did. I came back to D.C. Um, and, and somehow uh, networked my way through to uh you know, I've, I've advised, I guess, three White Houses in some capacity at, at this point. Um, many federal agencies, the Corps of Engineers, as you know, on the Civil Works side, GSA, um, DOT, et cetera, but also state and local governments, right? So, so right now I'm working on probably we've got 20 different clients across the nation from small irrigation districts that you would never think are thinking about infrastructure to massive utilities to, to state and federal agencies. Right. And so um, that's the story. I, I don't know that I would tell anyone young to replicate that. <laughs> um, if there's a lesson to be had from that, it's um, follow every opportunity. Right. I don't think I ever said no, even though it was scary. And that brought me, um, you know, the successes that I've had and it's allowed me to learn a great deal as I go. So I, I have to ask. So I, I listened to Madeline Albright's interview with Tim Ferriss uh, on the Tim Ferriss podcast. What w- what did you learn from Madeline Albright? Um, that strong women have a place in the world. Um, she was, uh, I remember the first time I actually had to go in, I was very shy. I, nobody can believe that about me, but I was actually quite <laughs> shy when I was younger. Um, and, and I had to go in because I wanted to drop a class. I just had been taking this one professor who was just, I don't know, I found him annoying after a while. And so I went in and it was kind of beyond the, the date for, for dropping a class. Um, and I would have to withdraw. And um, I was like, well, you know, couldn't I get into a different class? And she's like, what are you doing to yourself? Why, why would you? And I was like, I, she scared me into not withdrawing from the class. And I think that that um, at that point in time, you know, I think that I went from being a kid to being a, an adult. Right. So she treated me with great respect, but also without kids gloves. Um, and I think that, you know, at that point, I learned a lot. She, she did guide us. I mean, all of the Georgetown professors, I have to say, we were very fortunate with the uh, with the faculty that we had. You know, they guide us down paths that um, they're the ones that said, try it, you know. And if you fail, you can always go back and try it for the foreign service exam or do something different. But I think at the time, you know, maybe life was a little simpler. But, yeah, we just many of my, my colleagues from college uh, took some wild uh, adventures. And so but Madeline Albright, I always attribute um, sort of strength of character to her. Um, likewise, we had, you know, Nancy Pelosi, her daughter was was lived next door to me. So I just had a lot of exposure to very strong women. Um, and I think that's helped me in my career for sure. 
That's awesome. And it, you know, father of two daughters, I have three kids, but two daughters and you're seeing more and more, and especially for infrastructure, uh, females getting involved in infrastructure and in, in, in the construction industry. I mean, we have a huge, huge gap to fill in my opinion, um, and making it a more attractive industry because I think, um, for whatever reason, muddy boots, hard hats, you know, I, we actually have a book in my uh, in my family that says I think it's called "Except When They're Not," and it's all about you know boys and blues and girls and pinks, except when they're not. So that you know you can do other things. Any uh, any thoughts or any comments to the women that are considering the engineering field um, right now? You're needed. I mean, it's, so. I think that, you know, you've got to sort of put gender aside and just decide what gives you passion in life. Right. Um, when I started doing what I do, I don't think there were any women in sort of infrastructure finance where I was, particularly not Latin America. Right. I mean, it was a completely different environment. Um, I just found something that I enjoyed doing. I found fascinating and I just put on the gender blinders and just push forward. Um, yeah, sometimes you have to prove yourself a little bit more than maybe a, a male counterpart, but um, there are no barriers except for what we impose upon ourselves. And I think as we as we grow as a society, there are more women that are willing to, to, to put a hand out to help somebody else up. Right. Um, but absolutely nothing, nothing to be uh, to be shy of. Um, I would I would embrace it. I mean, I think that the diversity of perspectives in the infrastructure world is necessary for moving out of what I, I consider the great rut that we're in. Right. So things are not advancing as quickly as we like. We've been doing the same thing over and over again for 50 years. Um, we need to break out of this. And I think that requires innovative that's diversity, you know, whether it's race, gender, religion, it doesn't matter. Um, we need to see all colors and shapes and, and races and sexes in this industry um, in order to, to improve it. Amen. So one of, one of my uh, lines is that I call the AEC industry archaic, expensive, and complicated. What are some ways you're seeing that we can we can be pushing innovation or have seen that worked uh, for innovation? Yeah, you know, so, so I know we're going to get to it, but you know, when I look at the um, at the uh, American Rescue Plan, so the Biden plan, Build Back Better. Um, it goes through a lot of things and there's one one section and granted these are only principles of a plan at this point we don't know yep. what the details will say but one of the things he acknowledges is that the u.s needs to invest more wisely and i think that within the the white house release they talk about when we compare ourselves to canada or the uk or really in many countries france we are more expensive per unit of infrastructure. We are less efficient in terms of the timely implementation. And we can debate until we're blue in the face why that is, right? Whether it's permitting, whether it's, you know, overstudying, whether it's, it's, it's community action against infrastructure, et cetera. It can be many of these things. But we have to find a timely or more cost-effective manner to deliver infrastructure, not because it's the right thing to do for taxpayers. That should be enough, but that's not the only reason. The other reason is we can't afford to be inefficient anymore. Our dams are, are, are bursting. Our bridges are falling down. Investment in infrastructure is not a luxury. It's not something, this is where I might deviate a little bit from sort of the American Rescue Plan. The, the first principle there is to create jobs. The second is to invest in infrastructure. I believe that infrastructure is an end in and of itself. And most of our infrastructure at the, is at the end of its useful life. We cannot afford to do 30-year builds anymore. We need to get this stuff done. And I think one of those is in the delivery system, but it all filters back to how these projects are planned, implemented, and executed, right? And that's where we need the innovation. Um, on top of that, you know, we as a society in the United States are horrifically bad at maintenance. <laughs> uh, so so our, I always say our national pastime is deferred maintenance and kicking the can down the pothole road, right? And so as we build these things out, we also need to think about better ways to maintain them. That, that includes technology technology, smart infrastructure, right? We should be able to be advised by our infrastructure. If we're going to have water main breaks or if we're going to have, you know, uh, rotting uh, pipelines and those sorts of things. And so we, we just need to revamp this completely. And I am excited to see more thought going into that. Um, you know, there's a lot of, the, lot of um, 
a lot of groups that are now thinking about ways that we can be more efficient. It's not only through like performance-based contracting, but it's just in general, we have to fix ourselves. And this again is where I think the diversity of opinions um, can be helpful. People who haven't been in infrastructure who are coming into this space also offer really good ideas. So I think, yeah, it's just important that we broaden the, uh, the, broaden the uh, discussion so that we can include everyone. So you touched on our terrible O&M uh, problem, and I'm sure you've heard it. I've heard it. No, nobody gets to cut a ribbon at a uh, at an O&M project, right? Everybody wants to be cutting the ribbons at the big capital projects, big infrastructure spend. Those are the big wins. Uh, you've seen politics all over the world. Uh, you've seen different governments and how they prioritize infrastructure. Where where do we have the narrative wrong? in the U.S. with prioritizing infrastructure? Because it does feel like there was a time, maybe not so long ago, 30 years, uh, maybe 40 years, that infrastructure was above politics. Now it feels like nothing's above politics. Uh, how do we change that narrative? You know, there's, that's, that's a lot to unbundle, right? So how, do we, how do we fix America? Okay, so we begin. You know, so so I, th- I think there is a lot, right? And I think that looking at life cycle funding of, of infrastructure projects, right? We have to stop thinking, to your point, about the ribbon cutting ceremony and building new things and thinking about how are we going to strategically fund, finance, and deliver the infrastructure output over the life cycle of the assets. So if you're looking at a water system, you need to look at a 50-year or 70-year life cycle. How are we going to fund that? Um, and locking in the performance metrics up front so that you can't defer maintenance. I think that's part of it, right? Um, if it, it also depends on where you're, you're, you're talking, right? So, so deferred maintenance, there are ups and downs. But when we get to sort of local utility levels, because of the way the rate base is made and, the, and they're charging their customers, they're actually a little bit more able to be proactive in that, right? I'm not saying they're perfect, but they can do it. If we look at federal assets, federally owned and operated assets, for instance, we are horrific at it, right? Um, not only do we authorized projects that don't have funding, right? So the Corps of Engineers, as an example, has $85 billion in authorized projects that are not funded at this moment, right? So why do you do that? Is it Congress- Can, can, I, can I put a footnote on that? And, and sure, please. Yes. Yeah, talk about why, what, what the difference is between authorized versus funded. Yeah, that's an important thing, yeah. Could you, I, w- I would like you to. Oh, okay. So, so this is this is so really smart people in America who understand politics <laughs> often don't understand how actually things work at the federal level. So there, there are usually two types of legislation to get a project going. The first is to authorize a project as a federal pro- or the federally authorized project. So that's pretty easy. You just get Congress to say yes. The the public interest on this levy or this road or this, you know, bridge is in the federal interest and therefore it is federally authorized. That usually is a headline in a local paper, right? Hey, we've got federal authorization. Everybody starts saying, oh, I'm going to build my, you know, my windows so that it looks the other way. But the second part and the more important part is the appropriation where the money to actually execute that project goes. And there's a big disconnect between the two. And that's for political reasons. It's very easy to get things authorized. It's very difficult to get them appropriated. Now, appropriations can be for the full value of the project or a partial value, depending on the type of the project. But when you have you're the Corps of Engineers and every year, in the every two years in the in the Water Resources Development Act, you get a list of new projects that are authorized, and you say, "But wait, I have a thousand other projects that you guys have authorized that I have no funding to do." Right? So what do they do? They at the federal level, they then distribute. $20 to every project. As you know, in infrastructure, that doesn't get you a whole lot. So you might have one guy doing some initial design work, etc. But for this reason, to deliver those projects, it can take 30 years because you're getting drips and drabs of, 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 of money. Now, if we don't need the infrastructure and it's not that important, um, maybe that's okay. But I would argue that in today's world, where we're looking at, you know, flood protection and we're looking at those sorts of things, we can't afford to do that. It is the least efficient way to deliver infrastructure and the most expensive way. So it's the worst value for the taxpayer. Um, but that's just to build it. And then you have to figure out how you're going to pay for it. And, and to your point, BJ, um, Congress is much more willing to sort of throw money at, at shiny things when it comes to the O&M 
they do operation and maintenance budget. They basically just have a number that every year they plug in. So now if you're the Corps of Engineers and you have 100 new projects, those also have to be maintained with basically your same budget. So, so you have old stuff falling apart and new stuff that you're going to say, well, that's new. I'm going to push that off for another 30 years and I'm going to attack this. So they call the, the process they call at the federal level is fix as fails approach to infrastructure. So you <laughs> wait for it to break, get an emergency appropriation, and then you go ahead and fix it. Um, this is not the way we should operate. I mean, this, this is... This is what you would teach your children not to do. You don't wait in your own home until your roof collapses to put new shingles on, right? Um, you have to do it in a proactive way in order to, to minimize the cost. So, so that's one of the things that we have wrong, right? Um, so, so federally, I think that we've been looking at things in terms of ribbon cutting, the appropriations and, and, the, and, and the authorization disconnect is important. But also we have to also foresee that if we're going to invest in something, we need to also invest long-term to make sure that that can be maintained in a timely and cost-effective manner. Um, that also happens at the, at the state and local level, right? Um, everybody knows we love it when people go out and they, they have the shovels and they dig it, et cetera. Um, I think that uh, one way to address that, and we do this sort of in the P3 market, right? So, so you do a contract for 30 years as you're building it that also locks in maintenance at certain prescribed standards over the term of this. And the idea is basically, it's kind of like when you buy a warranty for your car. Yep. So, you know, some of us do and some of us don't, but if you don't, and then you don't change your oil or get your tires rotated, it starts to decline in value much quicker and you need to get a new car sooner. But if you, if you pay for a reasonably priced warranty, you can extend out the life cycle on that while ensuring that it's running at, 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 at standards that are acceptable. So I think those sorts of things we need to look at holistically. Um, infrastructure is not a ribbon cutting ceremony. I love those because I love the champagne after. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> That's the beginning of the journey, not the end. Um, there's so much that I wanted to jump in on. Uh, but the, the one thing I want to highlight is fix as fails. So I think of it as not only is it just bad business, but it's so much more expensive. So if you don't get your air conditioner maintained in the spring and you wait till the really, really hot day when everybody is too busy and your air conditioner breaks, the, uh, the air conditioner maintenance guy is coming and he said, I'll be there and he'll charge you $500 an hour instead of the typical $100 an hour. So the other thing that's happening, and I think it, it affects resiliency, it affects infrastructure, it affects our utilities, is because fixes fails is, is the plan, it's that much more expensive to fix because you're doing it with a gun to your head. So there's no negotiation time, there's no prioritization time, but all of it comes back to I think our, our inability as a nation to understand infrastructure finance as a priority, not as a political chip, but as a priority across the board. And one of our goals, you know, it, it, and it may be very, very uh, ambitious is that with this podcast, we can get away from the political headlines of an authorized project, which I call a good idea fairy, right? Everybody can have a good idea fairy floating around the room and, and get a win, but really for people to understand the whole appropriations process and, and how much infrastructure investment affects our lives. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, just, just to put a price tag on it, to your point on deferred maintenance, um, so, so it certainly depends on the asset. But um, the FAA for runways, for instance, for every dollar of deferred maintenance, that results in $6 in infrastructure needs in the future. Um, for buildings, it's like one every dollar of deferred maintenance is about $5 in the future. So, so there's a real cost. So by us not acting today, what we're doing is putting the burden on future generations at a much higher cost. And I think that's something that just needs to be considered within these infrastructure plans. You know, I've, I've said it a million times and I'll say it again, the solution to, to the nation's infrastructure crisis, and I do think it is a crisis because we are literally at the end of the useful life cycle of our inland waterway dams and <laughs> our dams and, and locks and dams, our, our, our bridges are, are deteriorating. We've got 850 million water breaks a day in the United States and it costs us $66 billion to fix them. Um, to get the lead out of our water, according to Michigan State University, we need a trillion dollars in investment now 
Um, and, and if that floats into rates and charges in the water sector, that's going to mean that about 36% of American households will not be able to afford water under affordability definition that EPA has. So there's a lot happening here. You know, we see our dams breaking. We see energy uh, power outages in, in Texas. We've got uh, resilience issues with climate change as well with Miami, with the water levels, the tables rising and pushing like sewage into the streets. So there's just a lot going on um, and we tend to localize it. But if we look at it as a nation, there's a lot that we have to do. But the solution is not a one off cash infusion. Um, and I don't think that's what the American Rescue Plan or Build Back Better is, is suggesting, but it's the way it's being interpreted. Um, we need a long-term strategy for building and maintaining our infrastructure. Um, and we also need to introduce reforms aimed at ensuring the infrastructure delivered and maintained in the timeliest and most cost-effective manner. Part of that is, is tying maybe the authorizations with life cycle appropriations. And instead of dividing those out, as you said, at the federal level, maybe tying them together, but also, you know, tying any federal funding to um, more a more robust O&M plan. I've been on the state and local side when, you know, you get an FTA grant or something and they want to see how are you going to operate and maintain this over the term. Um, and it's, you know, not often the most arduous analysis <laughs> that comes out of that. They're like, yeah, you know, we'll get the money from users in the future. But if you start putting all of this on the users in the future, then you do get into these affordability issues, equity issues, et cetera. So I think more thought needs to go into that. But it can't just be about a one-off cash infusion. We need as a nation an entirely new strategy for the long-term maintenance of our infrastructure, as well as a modernization. You know, I, I look to China and I look to, you know, other countries that are doing transformative projects. When you turn the Yellow River and you start moving like water north instead of south, I mean, that is transformative, right? In the US, it's taking us years to get to, you know, indirect potable reuse and direct potable reuse because of regulatory quagmires, right? And so, so we need to figure out ways that we can use the American ingenuity and get ourselves moving a little bit more quickly on, on entirely new transformational projects as well. So I, I want to highlight two things there. So one, trillions of dollars of need. This industry is not going away. It is urgent. Jobs, jobs, jobs. I mean, they're even though that's not that that is a goal, it it's just a requirement. Like I'm having a staff crisis right now, finding talent. Yeah. Uh, so anybody considering going to college or in college right now, uh, Jill is proof that there's opportunities in the finance side of of the infrastructure industry, uh, but the construction side, the downstream side, engineering, architecture, construction, uh, operations, maintenance. I mean, we need smart people. They they don't all need to go to Austin and to to uh, San, San Francisco uh, into the tech industry. We need you in the infrastructure industry. And then the second piece, and and I challenge you know senior executives, public side, private side. You know we know what it is we have to do. We know we have to put money into infrastructure. It's the how do we do it better? Um, and and one of the other goals of the podcast is being better stewards of these investments because we owe it to the taxpayers and we owe it to future generations to deploy this money as effectively as possible. And yes, there's a whole bunch of different things we could, we could debate what needs to improve. But I think the number one thing that needs to improve is we on project teams have to start a project at the planning phase, at the, at the concept phase, at the political phase, with the objectives clearly laid out and clearly articulated and make them apolitical and, and treat them as business problems to solve, not, not uh, political chips to be bargaining with. Uh, so, so that's my piece on that, Jill. I don't know if you have anything to add there. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned with the return of the earmarks, um, how this is going to play out. Right. So, so I think there are, there are a couple of things that I want to unbundle from what you just said. Um, yes. First, on the workforce issue. So I think that, um, you know, the construction industry in the United States has been suffering from workforce shortages for years now, right? Um, so, so the idea that, that investment infrastructure is going to create new jobs immediately is a bit of a stretch, to be quite frank. Um, I agree. There hasn't been a lot of hammers down during COVID, although some projects have stopped. We actually saw an acceleration in some of the backlog of construction. 
the challenge is, is that transitioning somebody from the service industry, and many of those were heavily impacted by, by, by COVID, to the construction industry is not an overnight endeavor, right? It requires a lot of workforce um, preparation and training. So to be a crane operator today, you know, you're going to need a couple of years of training. Um, likewise, as we start to automate processes with modular and those sorts of things, it's also a technological advancement that needs to go forward. So that needs to be part of any infrastructure pro program, right? Um, and whether that is on the legal side, the finance side, the, 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 the downstream A&E side as well, it's all there. And operators as well. We have a absolute aging out of our operators and public sector infrastructure yeah. right now. Um, now some of that will be automated so, so that, that the demographic shift is going to be okay, but there is still a need for people. Right. And so, so I think to your point, there are a lot of opportunities there for trained and for, for trained individuals. Um, going back to changing the system. Um, as I mentioned, um, we've, we've, although we've been without earmarks for the last number of years, um, because those basically led to the bridge to nowhere. You know, it's the most inefficient way of doing business. That was the political currency for negotiations, right? So Washington stopped working completely when the earmarks went away and you couldn't say, hey, come over to my side in exchange. I'm going to build you a road, et cetera. Now, as an American taxpayer, I hate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with the return of that, I fear that we're going to get more of those sorts of let's call them um, white elephant type projects that really aren't what we need in infrastructure. And those are specifically the projects that we've seen the worst life cycle maintenance on. Right. And so, so when we look for efficiency and delivery, that also needs to be addressed right now. Maybe this will only be a very small percentage. I know that that's what they're talking about is just having a little bit of a, of a, of an earmark there, but you know, as, as taxpayers, we deserve better. We deserve more serious people that can actually negotiate a solution rather than having to, to, to go into their back pocket and spend American taxpayer money on projects that don't need to get done. Um, but yeah, this is a problem. And, and Washington, Again, the, the incentive is we'll just put a big price tag on a bill and right. say this is a $2.3 trillion bill. Well, if you actually dig into it, some of these things don't require like actual cash. They're using tax benefits and those sorts of things. Some of it, in my opinion, could also be probably downsized. I, I don't think that there's that much of a need to incentivize commercial real estate industry to, to do retrofits. Um, it's in their economic interest now. So why does that have to be something that the federal taxpayer is encouraging beyond the mere economics of it? But that said, I mean, yeah, this is uh, it's an ambitious plan, but the devil will be in the details and we haven't seen those yet. Well, I look forward to your analysis when the details do hit. Uh, moving, moving into what we call our navigate section, uh, and because you do have such international experience, maybe, maybe this is going to be how do we, how do we better navigate politics? But a leadership or project experience challenge uh, and story that teaches us, you know, something complex that was figured out that you were able to navigate, that you were in the room uh, helping the deal get done or helping the project move forward. Anything well, come to yeah. mind? So almost all of the pro so I, I tend to focus on projects that are first in the industry. So I love like the the ones that everyone says, no way you can do this. This is impossible. So so that's what sort of my go to project. Um, yeah. and I've done many of those, and so all of those I, I look back with great pride on. But I, I would say the one that really just in my mind's eye that that just stands out head and shoulders above the others was in Kosovo. Um, as I said, you know, Kosovo declared independence in 2010 and, and shortly thereafter, um, I was asked by the State Department and USAID and the others to help them have a semblance of normalcy by reinvesting in the airport. And uh, they had no money. So the idea was, well, why don't we attract a private investor um, under a P3 that they're like, what is P3? Is that the Pakistan People's Party? What are we talking about? So I had to like sort of from day one, but that required us to write the law um, for, to allow for public-private partnerships. I worked with a uh, interministerial steering committee, um, had to work with the Quint, so many foreign countries were also involved in sort of the, the support of governance there. Um, 
But it was a heavily competed process. It was successfully closed at a really, really good price. Um, financial close happened within 30 days after award. And it was at the time when Midway Airport in Chicago failed because of the financial crisis, right? And so I'm like, how can we take a country that doesn't have any credit rating at all in the midst of the global financial crisis and, and achieve financial close on that. And so that was great. I mean, it was great for the people of Kosovo. It gave them something of pride and ownership in a new nation. The airport itself has won awards up and down the charts. It's really well organized, um, beautiful new facility. So, so that one is just, you know, those are the way it gave the country something to be proud of, sort of a, a monument to their independence. But at the same time, it was done under almost impossible conditions. Um, and I was literally jet lagged for like three years. So going back <laughs> and, um, and the fact that that, that that I survived that, I think, is in and of itself something that uh, that I remember well. So devil in the details, how how much risk is priced in a deal like that? So for for our listeners who might not be familiar with infrastructure finance or even finance in layman's terms, Kosovo is like somebody who just got out of college and is looking for a job and they're getting financing on a new home without without the income to to justify the underwriting of that. So you know when you say that you, you close it in 30 days, I mean I'm I need I need more details, Jill. Yeah, so so this was a revenue based deal, right? So, okay. so the only the only thing backing the private so it was privately financed, um, not government financed. Right. The only thing backing that was the revenues from the airport, right? And obviously, um, at the time, they were relatively low because the airport was literally an old military field. So you'd get out and get rained on and then you'd go into a building and they check your passport. Um, so, so we really didn't know what the growth would be. So we put a, like a floor and a cap on it in terms of the revenue. They offered a percentage of the revenue that they would take um, to back the financing for this. They took on all the delivery risks. So it was a design, build, finance, operate, maintain. Um, and, um, you know, I think it was Airports de Lyon, the French uh, airport operator together with Turkish construction companies. Um, and they were able to, to secure the financing on the basis of the cash flows and the contract that we developed. So, you know, there are things like, you know, so, so it's pretty standard in my world, but, you know, a P3 contract can be a thousand pages of details um, to get non-recourse financing, which is basically on the basis of cash flow commitments um, from the project. It's not easy, but we wrote a very good contract um, and one that, you um, has held up really well under some stress. There's always stress in right. the time, particularly with COVID reducing it revenues and those sorts of things. They've been able to move forward um, consistently throughout. So that, that's a really good project for me. Some of the other ones, uh, you know, I, I'm so old that my P3 projects are now expiring, right? And so I, I get to look back at the totality of what was achieved, and that's also quite satisfying. So I'm sure. Uh, Public-private partnerships, I think, you know, we're, we are behind in what P3 can be, I think, in the U.S. I don't know your thoughts on that. I know that on the DOD side, OMB scoring has has always caused an issue, and I think that's tied to life cycle value, life cycle costs, and I think it's appropriate uh, intention, but it, it's getting the wrong results. Uh Anything that we could be doing as a nation better from a P3 standpoint? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think we have to look at this broadly based. I am literally, I do not proselytize P3. Um, I know that in my industry, some do. I use it as a surgical tool when it fits a project. I do not open with it, right? And so um, for me, we are not necessarily behind in the U.S., um, what differentiates the United States from every other country on the planet when it comes to infrastructure finance is our ability at the state and local level to get really low cost municipal financing, right? So part of the driver globally is that an airport authority or even a ministry cannot get their own financing. And so if they can just ring fence the revenues from something and do that, they can do that with the private sector. They don't do it themselves. Here we have port authorities that are AAA rated and they can do those sorts of things. So it makes the argument for private capital a little bit more difficult because most of our, our government entities can borrow much more cheaply. Um, then it becomes an issue of is there a way to, to ring fence the risk? Is there actually a revenue stream or how is that going to work? Now, I work on all kinds of P3s, right? So whether it's at universities, federal, state, and local, um, it depends, right? Um, 
often with new technologies like indirect potable reuse or desalination or the hyperloop. It makes total sense for the private entity to be taking on the risk of delivery and those sorts of things. It's harder when you go into a um, when you go into a project where the entity has really good experience and they have operators and those sorts of things, that's where it gets a little bit more difficult to make the case in the United States than in other places. Um, obviously, toll roads, we've, we've had a great experience right. with that and some, some, some airports as well. So I, I think we have that experience, but the accounting rules have been moving against P3 by saying that if you do an availability payment type P3, which is kind of like paying a rent over time, um, you've got to count that as a liability. And so that's going to impact your credit score. So, so, so it's made a little bit more difficult in that regard. At the federal level, it's an entirely different story, right? So at the federal level, it is illegal. Um, according to OMB scoring guidance and CBO scoring guidance to, um, well, it's not illegal. It's impractical to do it because the way it's scored. Um, and by that, I mean, so, so OMB and CBO have as part of the responsibility protecting the credit rating of the United States of America. And I think we all agree that that's important. In the 1990s, um, particularly with GSA, um, decided that there was a loophole that they could explore. And that was instead of either instead of having to get an appropriation to buy a new building, they could do a lease to own sort of model, um, or they could have a build the suit um, sort of model. Um, and that's fine. But OMB and CBO collectively got together and said, no, we can't allow you to take out mortgages <laughs> over time because we need to score that as debt. Right. And so that's sort of what led to the scoring situation that you referred to that makes it impossible, well, very difficult, improbable for federal agencies to be able to, to use public-private partnerships. If a private entity comes in and design, builds, finances, and operates and maintains over a 30-year, the entire value of the life cycle of payments that need to go out to them will be scored in one year. So that basically means instead of $100 million a year for 10 years, you need uh, you need a billion dollars in one single appropriation, right. and you don't get those, right? That just right. doesn't come around. So that's what the problem has been. Um, it, it is somewhat supported now by late Johnny Come Lately accounting uh, rules. I would argue, however, that um, there should be exceptions to that. So we do see, for instance, ESCOs, um, energy saving performance contracts, and those sorts of things that are allowed to go forward under the same model. So a private entity can finance and deliver those and they're paid back because they're utilities and they're operating costs, right? So, so I think for some infrastructure, particularly with the Corps of Engineers on the civil work side and some of the others, there should be a little bit more consideration of, of, of the ability to consider some of those payments more on the operating side rather than on, on, on the capital side. But that's the problem we have. I would love to see the ability, at least on a pilot basis, to do a little bit more with this. Again, to maybe show Congress um, that there are other opportunities besides the sort of broken model that we have. Um, and the Corps of Engineers, as you know, has a P3 pilot program but they have no authorities to do what needs to be done. Right? They're, right. They're, they're stopped by the good folks at OMB and CBO um, from accruing any obligations. So it's a little bit of a, of a, of a head fake legislatively in terms of the authority to do it, but really they have no power to do it. Yeah. I, I would like to see that happen uh, because I think back to our, uh, authorized projects versus funded projects. We could start chewing away at that in a more creative way Absolutely. on behalf of the taxpayer. Uh, moving into Accelerate, some rapid fire questions for you, Jill. Uh, we talked a lot about public policy and infrastructure investment, but any other current event or, uh, or society issue you are actively involved in? Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but yeah, I, um, I'm an endurance athlete as well. Um, so right now, my uh, so, so this is not, there, there's so many issues that I care about, but um, I do a lot um, for people with dementia and Alzheimer's. And so um, I am gearing up at this moment to run the World Marathon Challenge next February, which is running seven marathons on over seven days on seven different continents. Um, so I think in the history of the world, like 140 people have done it. I'm like old and tired, so I'm not really sure I'll be able to do it, but, um, I've set the goal. Um, I'm signed up and I'm all set to go. So, um, I'm spending a lot of time with that and, and hopefully in doing this, I can also raise, uh, awareness for, um, 
for some of the society that, you know, with dementia and Alzheimer's that uh, can't really speak for themselves at this point. We will make sure we mention that um, if you can get us the link for that on the show notes. So I I need to see the logistics associated with it too, because I don't know how you get to, I, I don't know how I could run seven marathons ever let alone in seven days in seven continents. So, so the, 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 the postage stamp uh, description of this is we all meet in South Africa in okay. like late January of next year. Um, we fly on a Russian um, cargo plane to Antarctica, land on the ice. We run our marathon on the ice. It won't be my first in Antarctica. I've actually run another marathon there. But we run uh, that. Then we get back on the plane. And that's when the clock starts ticking when we when, at the starting line there. We finish that. We go back to Cape Town. We run a marathon in Cape Town. Then we jump on the airplane and then we fly to Perth, Australia, and we run a marathon in Perth. Then we jump on the airplane, fly to Dubai. We run in Dubai at like 2 a.m. Then we fly to Madrid and we run at the Formula One Center, where, so where the cars race. Then we fly to Brazil and we uh, in Fortaleza, Brazil, we run a marathon. And then we finish in South Beach in Miami, um, at which point I may retire my running shoes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's going to be a thing. So we'll see how that goes. I'm exhausted thinking about it, but wishing you luck. I can't imagine what your training schedule is going to look like. I just uh, run all the time now. Yeah. (laughs) The only thing is I have to, I I don't think, I think I can do it. I just have to run fast enough not to miss the plane. Right. That's my, there you go. That's unbelievable. So I, I I have to interject this. I think you've taken Duke DeLuca's position. He is the world's most interesting man. You are now the world's most interesting person in my life. Well, thank you. Um, that's, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but maybe I can uh, do some uh, some some Corona uh, commercials in the future. Whatever. I think it's a great thing. Uh, favorite quote. Do you have any favorite quotes? So favorite quote is like, um, you know, it depends on my mood, right? But uh, the one that I kind of turn to quite frequently is Winston Churchill, because I, I just what a what a character. Talk about the most interesting yeah. people in the world. But he said, "Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts." Right? And I think that's really important. You know, sometimes people get so occupied patting themselves on the back for a success, but really, you know, it's, it's a moment in time and then you have to continue going forward and same with failure. If you don't fail, you haven't tried. I mean, I can, we could do an entire podcast of where I've stumbled and fallen and and made mistakes. Right. Um, But it's the ability to get up and it's the courage to keep going. I think that's really important. Um, So yeah, I'll go with that one. I love that. How about favorite book or, or must read book? Doesn't have to be infrastructure related. Yeah, so I, I could I could give you some wonky stuff about infrastructure, <laughs> but I'm not going to. Although if you haven't read um, the Road Taken, uh, which came out I guess a few years ago about the history of U.S. infrastructure, you probably should. It's a good one. As is. Uh, 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 well, there are a number of them, but you know what? I'm going to go completely off script here. Um, just because I just reread it. Um, it's called the Tao of Pooh and it's Winnie the Pooh explaining West Eastern philosophy. Um, Taoism, if you're familiar with that, for some reason, it's about how to simplify life in your mind and everything. It's like a 10 minute read. If you're an adult, it might be longer as a child, but I'm going to go with that. Um, that's, that was a really good book and I've read it now like six times in my life. So that's going to be my must read to people who want a light read. That's profoundly interesting. I love it. Cause I, I thought you were going somewhere else. I'm, I just finished up the Dow of capital and I thought you were going there. Ah. <laughs> the, da- the Dow of Pooh seems easier. So, uh, if I get to Turks and Caicos, assuming my uh, passport comes through, I'm bringing that, uh, dead or alive. If you could hang out with three people for a day, so would they be and what would you do? I'm going to put aside all the people I love and have lost, right? Because that's boring for your listeners, right? But if I had to, if I had to choose, and this is, again, I think it, implies, it depends on your mood in many respects. Yeah, I agree. Um, sort of the original, no way would I ever forget him, go-to would be Leonardo da Vinci. Um, just brilliant mind, artistic, intellectual, inventor, right? Um, and I think that I would just uh, enjoy being around him. Um I'd need somebody from sort of the philosopher area, right? And so I could probably go with like Lao Tzu if we want to talk about um, uh, Taoism, but I don't speak his language anymore in, in Confucius. So maybe I'd go with like Alan Watts, who was the British philosopher who kind of mainstreamed some of Eastern philosophy. Um, and then the, the third would have to be 
I mean, there's so many interesting people on this planet that I would love, you know, and I could go like adventurer, like a Shackleton and find out how he's like survived. Winston Churchill, I'm always fascinated by him. But, you know, I think I'd probably go with like right now the queen, um, Queen Elizabeth, just because she's seen so much history. And I would love to yeah. give her perspective on that. And I might just invite a fourth because I, you know, can because it's my dinner party. Um, and I could invite like Gandhi because he probably wouldn't eat much uh, anyway, right? Um, but I think that would also be a, a good addition. But that's just a hard, hard question. That is. But yeah, I'll go with the Queen, Alan Watts, and Leonardo da Vinci because um, I think they're all probably really good dinner companions as well. I agree. So. I'm letting Gandhi in the room too. I like it. Oh, well, he's not going to eat much, right? So you, right. you've got plenty of extra for the others. So. Um, speaking of quotes, be the change you wish to see in the world is one of my favorites by yeah. uh, Gandhi. Um, legacy. What do you want on your tombstone? So I don't know that I even want a tombstone. I'm like, just, you know, cremate me and shoot me into space. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure. I, I don't believe in legacies. I think that that is um, – it's just something that, that doesn't need to happen. I just want to, uh, while I'm living, do my best to make this a better society, right? I mean, I think that's all any of us can do is give more than I take um, and be a positive influence to everyone around me, right? Whether it's an infrastructure or on a personal basis, et cetera. Um, I don't worry about legacy. Legacy takes care of itself. Much more impactful people in this planet have died and we've forgotten about that, that I will be. So I'm not going to spend my time worrying about that. I'm going to spend my time worrying about today and doing the best I can every day. That's great. Any closing inspiration or, or any challenges to our, uh, our audience? Yeah, no, I, I think that, look, you know, you just need to, to – well, so there's another quote from Winnie the Pooh that I'll give you, but life is not a journey to be experienced. Excuse me. Life is a journey to be experienced. It's not a problem to be solved. Right. Um, and I think that so often we, we get so caught up in, in the day to day and how we can position ourselves for success and those sorts of things that we forget to live. Right. And I find that for me. I'm at my best intellectually when I am actually living my best life, right? Um, and with balance and work, work, work life balance and those sorts of things. Um, we need fresh perspectives right now. We don't need people who are stressed and, and only thinking about one thing, right? We need fresh perspectives to give us fresh solutions to old problems like infrastructure right and so um I, I would say let's all just try to get along um listen to one another um and search for the best solution to, to the nation's problems and, and together i don't think there's anything we can't do it's just when we're divided against ourselves that we uh become so anemic that's awesome jill thank you so much for your time appreciate you uh hopping on the show with us Everybody, if you enjoy our show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People in Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants or anybody else who will find value from it. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter. If you want to learn more about the MCFA DNA, check out our case studies. And be sure to follow Jill Jameson on LinkedIn to stay up to date on all things, infrastructure and infrastructure finance. Until next time, have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody.